Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. Welcome to What We Gonna Do. I guess we're ready to start. I know you, I don't want to take up you know more time than you have. Um, so if you guys wouldn't mind, so obviously like the purpose of this episode is to give context to um, the the death of George Floyd and kind of the community around it that. Um, has been dealing with the aftermath. And so I think that, you know, having people who are really involved with the community who can provide us some context, maybe some um, some lessons from what you've seen so far and kind of where you think this might be headed ideally and, and then maybe realistically uh, would be great. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of telling our viewers uh, kind of who you are uh, and kind of what your connection to Minneapolis is. Callie, you can begin. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, so I grew up in this area. Um, I'm here right now. Um, I work for a major corporation here and I oversee their social responsibility, which is a lot of, you know, transforming their own internal ways of being so that we can appropriately invest in our communities. Um, and then I know Ron will probably touch on this, but six years ago, I started an organization here called New Leaders Council, which seeks to bring together people across sectors to advance equity in the region with the idea that, you know, really the powerful way to change the things that are happening is to work from within the systems while also taking them down in the longer term and being able to move forward with a network of people that are all leading from the same values and you can call on each other to get things done. So... I'll land there. Ron, what about you? Hey, yeah. Thanks for the invitation. Happy to have this conversation. Uh, I, too, am from the, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Um, I've been here for the last almost 20 years. And um, that's actually how I met Callie through the New Leaders Council chapter. Um, she got a group of us together, and we just came together and helped kind of make her vision reality here in the Twin Cities. And um, every single day, we're reminded how important that work is in making sure that millennials, particularly millennials of color, build the kind of power to uh, advance some of these social causes, whether it's in the private sector or if it's in the public sector or what have you. Um, I do a lot of work in the city. I kind of come from a political and the government background. And so my approach to social change has been, you know, organizing activism and then, you know, turning that energy on the outside into real changes on the inside. So really leveraging government and electoral politics to advance these causes and improve people's lives. Great. Well, Ron, it's a pleasure to meet you. Obviously, thank you so much, Callie. So Callie and I, for those of you who don't know, met on a fellowship in Israel two summers ago almost, which is crazy it's been that long. Um, And she used to be my buddy in downtown Los Angeles, and then she moved home um, at the end of last year and is now based in Minneapolis. So, I mean, it's funny how life works. Um, I mean, I'm actually very glad that you're able to be in that community and kind of like help to the extent that you can um, kind of recover from this and maybe grow, you know, help the community grow from this. So I've never been to Minneapolis. I think a lot of people haven't. I mean, I know that it's pretty and has lots of corporate headquarters. I also know that it's the home to a lot of kind of well-established uh, ethnic communities, which is surprising because when I think of Minnesota, I think, I mean, until Lizzo, I, I think right that way. <laughs> so, fair, fair, fair. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I think, that, I think that most people looking at this probably who have not been have a similar, this is their first exposure to that community, So, which is unfortunate, obviously. So could you provide us with some helpful context in terms of, like, what's been going on there uh, and kind of, like, when this tragedy struck, what was already underway in terms of, you know, addressing some of these needs um, and kind of what were the challenges that you, as you understood them? 
Yeah. Ron, I actually would love if like maybe we could start with an overview of Minneapolis just generally for folks, because I know a lot of people think it's like the same as Fargo and Wisconsin and generally flyover country. And then we can talk a little bit more about how that has sort of set the stage for what is happening now. So I feel like, do you want to, do you want to start? Yeah, I'll kick it off and uh, we can just go back and forth on it. Um, Yeah. Minneapolis in so many ways is underrated. And I think part of it is because Minnesota as as a whole is just white. It's a very, very white state, um, but Minneapolis is increasingly becoming more diverse. Um, and our elementary schools and middle schools, for example, there and our public schools are majority minority already, right? So that we know this kind of incoming generation and, and the folks growing up now are gonna be um, mostly of color, which is um, kind of exciting, um, but it's also scary for folks. Minneapolis also has the worst racial disparity gaps um, in the country in many ways. Um, disparity as it relates to access to education and education outcomes, access to good wages and good jobs, um, political power, you go down the list, housing, you go down a list, we rank, you know, in the top two, top three cities of most unequal. And there's some stiff competition. And there's some tough competition. <laughs> yeah, that's right? not a competition you want to win, damn, okay. No, I mean, you know, you know, I was telling Cali, it's kind of the tale of two cities, right? On the one hand, we have a lot of articles about how great it is to live in Minneapolis, how rich the job market is, we have, we're the healthiest city in the country, number one park system in the country, Right. The most bike, one of the most bike friendly, bike friendly cities in North America. I can go down the list with how good the good parts of Minneapolis is. But if you're not white, you're not really experiencing that uh, reality. And we've been plagued with that for a very, very long time. Um, You know, when you think about um, just how unequal that we've been, um, it's no surprise that we're at this place today. Right. If you keep going, you can only be unequal for so long. and it hasn't been without trying either. I think that we've put in a lot of effort to close those gaps, but unfortunately the story isn't told, uh, one, just how diverse our community actually is, and two, just how bad the outcomes actually are for mm-hmm. black and brown folks. Yeah, I mean, I, I would add on to that and say like, we do have a lot of incredible communities that are here, but the segregation is very real. Um, and I think that, of course, like Ron is saying, that just contributes to the inequity that we see in our communities. Um, I sit on the Commission for Health Equity. We have some of the worst in the state. That is insane. Um, because again, the, I think the broad picture of Minnesota is that it is this progressive heaven, but it's only for a certain group of people. And just to add on to that, and I think we'll get into this later in the discussion, is that I think we have the right political leadership, but this is beyond policy and politics. We have an incredible governor, an incredible lieutenant governor. Um, we have incredible commissioners and city council members, and it's not enough, right? Because what we're talking about, and I think this is what Ron is also referencing, is years of inequity, years of segregation, years of not having equal access to things. And that has really, again, sort of like centered what's happening in the city right now. And but I guess like, go on. I was just going to say, I mean, it is beautiful for like the four months that the sun is shining. Like it's an incredible. I was going to say, like it's a limited time out there. Sure. <laughs> but nobody's yeah. happier when it happens. You know what I mean? If you survive negative 40, when it suddenly hits 90, you're like, everybody's out. Yeah. What do you mean 90? I mean, if, if you're used to negative 40 and it hits 10 degrees with sun, you get yeah, people like, 14. That's real. degrees at that point. Yeah. Um, well, and I guess like even more of a kind of like high level, it's like, what is the kind of, who, who, lives, in Minnes- who lives in Minneapolis? We have the- like, What are the kind of demographics? Like, is it just black people? I know that we have like a substantial Somali population, I believe. Um, yeah. Kind of what is the mix? 
So we have the largest Somali population outside of Somalia. Um, we have a large Hmong population. Hmong people are um, from, uh, I mean, they're nomadic people, but they have a, you know, a large population of folks that are here. Um, we have a lot of black people. We have a lot of mostly white people. Um, I don't know, Ron, what else would you add? Yeah, so, you know, high concentration of, you know, Hmong, Southeast Asian folks, um, to your point, highest concentration of Somali people outside of Mogadishu. We also have a pretty substantial uh, West, West African population as well uh, in our suburbs. And then... Okay, uh, and so I guess, like, when, I mean, I guess the last time I've thought substantially about Minnesota is kind of when Philando Castile was killed. Um, I don't know where where was he in relation to Minneapolis? Like, was was how was that kind of tragedy felt? You know, I guess was it two years ago now, a year ago? I don't even know at this point. Like, did that have any impact on Minneapolis in terms of like raising awareness of this issue? Kind of like as we led toward the events of last week. Absolutely, um, Philando was murdered in um, by Falcon Heights police, and Falcon Heights is a suburb of St. Paul. So I think in this context, I'm going to tick off some St. Paul people. But when we say Minneapolis, really meaning the Minneapolis-St. Paul region. Yeah. Um, so those killings, they, I mean, they happened. I mean, it's pretty much Minneapolis, right? I mean, that's okay. it's the surrounding suburb. So, you know, two cities away, maybe. And so what was the outcry? I mean, obviously, like a lot, I mean, people around the nation were horrified by that. Um, what was the, I mean, it must have sparked some sort of discussion and maybe like, hopefully some proposed reforms in Minneapolis. Like, where were those reforms kind of when this happened with George Floyd? It's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> people have to recognize that, you know, the folks in Minneapolis in particular have been battling this police brutality, uh, low-level offenses, criminal justice reform for quite a while. Um, I think since 2012 or 2013, we've had six Black people killed uh, by police, by our police department, just in Minneapolis alone. And... Philando was the one that really brought the national attention, I think, to, to what was going on. But before Philando was murdered, Jamar Clark was killed. Um, Jamar Clark was killed in North Minneapolis, right just outside of the, the police precinct, um, because the officer said he was going for his gun, even though uh, Jamar had handcuffs and the officer essentially shot him point blank in the head. Uh, 60 seconds after interacting with him, after somebody had called uh called the ambulance after a party or something like that. And so when that happened, we had our uh, previous mayor, Betsy Hodges, and through even before Jamar Clark was killed, she was really adamant about advancing some of this police reform. Uh, under her tenure, we were able to implement body cams, implicit bias trainings, um, I believe some de-escalation tactics and trainings, and even moved some money out of the police department into some community policing, right? It was a small amount of money, but it was a signal that said, we're gonna to start to invest in alternate means of public safety that have nothing to do with law enforcement. So to answer your question about where were these reforms when George Floyd was killed, they were all implemented, mm. right? We, 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 I think that's one of the reasons why we're so frustrated in Minneapolis because we're doing all the things that you're supposed to do. Um, looking back, we, know, we now know that body cams don't really drive down police brutality. The escalation train really doesn't drive down um, uh, police use of force. And so we have to start thinking differently about not only how much we rely on police overall, but what are the alternate means of keeping the community safe that have nothing to do with um, law enforcement? Mm -hmm. I guess, well, 
I would add two things. One is that I think we're starting to understand the complexity, right? And so now you're seeing a lot of action being called for Minneapolis-St. Paul folks to get Bob Kroll out. Bob Kroll is the PD union president and has enabled essentially a culture of a lot of what we're seeing today. I think the other dimension of this is community policing. Um, and you're seeing a lot of, I mean, literally every block in the cities is organizing by block to protect their property in the evenings over the last seven nights to just make sure that they're able to understand who's in the area and keep themselves safe. Um, and then I guess the third thing I would add is the divestment from the MPDs. You're seeing the University of Minnesota pull out. You're seeing the um, the school department uh, board like voted last night that they were going to cancel the $1.1 million contract. The park board is voting on it today and folks are dialing. So I think to Ron's point, like there are other other solutions that are going to potentially come forward and a recognition that, again, you can have the right leadership, but there are other dynamics here at play that are in igniting this situation. Right. And I want to get more into kind of like how you hope that this, you know, leads to good outcomes. Um, but I want to talk first about kind of the immediate aftermath of the killing um, of George Floyd and kind of all, you know, around America, we've seen kind of the extremely emotional and, you know, overwhelming amount of kind of protesting and the subsequent looting and then the subsequent kind of community bounce back, if I can call it that, like how people reacted. Can you describe like what the last week has been like? I mean, if you're ready. Yeah, um, I like how you said community bounce back because um, what we're seeing is just how resilient Minneapolis actually is. Um, you know, immediately when this happened, um, unfortunately we've been through so many police killings, police murders in these last few years that it's almost like we go on autopilot. We know exactly what to do. We bring people together. We hit the streets. We make noise. Um, this one felt a little bit different, though. And I think, well, I know it felt different for a handful of reasons. One, we were in a pandemic for two months and locked in the house and haven't had as much social interaction that we're used to. And a lot of people are losing their jobs and all those things. Two, and also that, that, just to jump in, also so much racial inequity was made more obvious through that. I'm not sure that's what. Yeah, black, black and brown folks dying two to three times more than everybody else. Uh, black and brown folks overwhelmingly, particularly women, are essential workers that had to go back to work and be exposed to more people and risk their health and safety while also getting paid lower than a living wage and having no access to paid sick time, right? So to add these things up on black and brown folks. And then over the last four weeks, we've seen all the crazy racist stuff that's been popping off, right? The two FedEx workers who are standing up against that racist uh, uh uh, when they dropped off his package, right? And they stood up and they had the video and FedEx fired the two of them. You think about the Karen in Central Park who weaponized 911 on a black man just for literally recording her while she was breaking the park rules, you know? Uh, you think about Ahmaud Arbery, who we find that video finally came out about a month ago and we were still reeling with that, you know? You think about Brianna who was, who was killed, right? On May 1st, um, these two folks got in a fender bender and the white dude shot up the black dude and said he feared for his life. That happened in St. Paul. So four or five racial instances concentrated in about four, four to five weeks. And this was kind of the tipping point, right? This was the moment that people were really, really upset. So describing the last week though, we've seen, certainly you've seen across the media just how scary things have been and how violent in a lot of ways things have been. Um, certainly a reflection of people's pain, but also outside agitators coming and messing things up. But you've seen, what you haven't seen is the beautiful community that's come together. 
You haven't seen organizations come out and put out their statements and put in money into the community. People just showing up thousands of people at different sites in Minneapolis, like an assembly line, passing through supplies, collecting resources. You know, all of our friends on Instagram sharing all kinds of opportunities to weigh in. People from around the world sending Venmo and PayPal to me so that we can contribute on the ground. So we're seeing these kind of informal community ties start to be strengthened through this. And I hope, you know, moving forward that we can retain some of this and make it a little more formal. And to show that, you know, even though we send in the National Guard to clear out the streets overnight, we saw people all day helping out, passing out supplies, and then at night staying up all night protecting their block from outside agitators. No one told them to, it wasn't part of their job. It was like, hey, I'm getting it on my neighbor. We're gonna organize a block cap and we're gonna band together because we don't trust law enforcement to keep us safe. We're gonna keep our own businesses safe. They boarded up businesses, put black owned on the wall. I mean, it was just, we're seeing some beautiful community building and I wish that the media kind of lifted that up a little bit more. Completely agree. I mean, the amount of mutual aid hubs that are going up, we have like community-based EMT models that are happening. Mm -hmm. We have community members being trained in how to be legal observers and protesters. We have folks doing medical runs because the buildings that have supplied medication for the people in those neighborhoods have been burned down. Um, going out to the suburbs to pick up people's medication and running it in, delivering food, like donation sites that set up and say, here are the things that I need today. And two hours later, having so many bags on the sidewalk that they're like, we are completely overwhelmed. We don't even know what to do. Please direct all of your donations to this other site, right? It, it is truly incredible. And I don't want to take away from what this moment is also about, which is justice for George Floyd and the Minneapolis Police Department and police departments writ large. But again, there is so much incredible organizing and community that is coming out of this that I, I agree. Like, I just really hope we can retain that. Well, it's interesting that Go on. I'm sorry. Go on, we're, we're proving that we can take away from some of these official systems and official institutions yeah, exactly. and uh, allow community to, to, to govern themselves and keep themselves safe. Um, totally. We didn't send instructions for community block captains on how to stay in touch, but they downloaded walkie-talkie apps. They made sure everybody had flashlights. They had a, a texting string. If some you know rando was driving down the street without a license plate and all their headlights off, Boom. You know, we know exactly their route. They're telling coordinates. I mean, it was beautiful to see. And I, and I hope that people start to trust community because community knows what it's doing. We really do. Yeah. 100%. And I think that speaks to a larger point too, because there's networks of yes, like safe houses and getaway cars and yeah. all these people who get stuck and need support. And like, it is on us, right? Again, like we have the right leadership, we're changing policies. That is gonna take a long time and we should pursue that, but it's also on us, right? And like, we belong in this world together. We are interdependent. We have to absorb that, make that real and like really look out for each other. And I think we're starting to see the seeds of that and that's amazing. So I, I do hope that, you know, in a couple years, to your question, Trey, like that can continue to manifest itself as well as the other systemic changes that were already taking place in our city. Well, I mean, it's been interesting even during COVID to see kind of like all these things that would never have been on the table as options or, you know, like thinking separate from racism, like environment, like all these kind of climate change efforts that we have like continued to push off. We saw what actually happens when you shut down factories and cars and ships and all that stuff. It's like that never would have been uh, something we would have proactively chosen to do, but yet we see now the results of having done that. I think in the same way, you know, you never would have said, like, we're going to set up community policing and bone banks and food banks and, you know, all of that. All of those things would have taken so long to even have, like, a minuscule prototype 
you know, deployed by the government, you know, that would kind of lessen our dependence on law enforcement. But now you've seen that things can spring up with no, you know, official infrastructure. So how, has there been any kind of response from leadership who have kind of voiced what you're saying? Like, hey, like now that we have these things, like maybe we can actually like give them the strength of real funding and infrastructure and policy and, you know, maybe kind of carry these things forward or has there been resistance? And separate from that question, what has been the reaction from law enforcement? I mean, I think it's all over the place, I'm sure, but um, I think that's a relationship that's worth kind of dwelling on at least for a second. I'll speak to the leadership piece. Um, two things, one, community has been advocating for this stuff for a long time, right? Let's divest from the police. Let's put together a community policing model, um, food justice and food access and, and all these things. And it's largely fell on deaf ears over the time, over the years. So I think the combination of COVID and the speed in which governments have changed and the speed in which money is spent and passed and laws are changed, right? We're able to extend unemployment benefits, for example, and give people relief pay and all this stuff. And so I think what people are starting to understand is that all the excuses for making policy change that used to exist, oh, it doesn't work, right? The structure doesn't allow for it, the system. We're now learning that, no, that's not true. It's all about political will. And so now, fast forward to this moment, the things that community is asking for, not only are we asking for them, we're, we're showing an example of how it works. And leadership, I think, is responding. I know in Minneapolis and St. Paul in particular, they're all calling for divestment from the police. They're all calling for funding to the underground organizations that actually keep people safe and actually keep people fed and actually keep people engaged and educated. And they're, they're looking at models to now shift some funding towards supporting those groups. So, I, I, you know, I think at least in the cities, people are listening to folks when we're talking about these new models and looking to invest, invest in those things. I um, haven't seen much resistance actually on a local level for any of this stuff. And a year ago, a lot of it would have been laughed out of the room, to be honest. Sure. Yeah. Anyone, anyone want to touch law enforcement? <laughs> I mean, as someone who's in Los Angeles, I've seen, you know, and we're not even dealing with like an acute issue. I mean, we're dealing with an acute issue, but we're not dealing with an incident in Los Angeles. But the reaction from law enforcement has been, to me, so uh, counterproductive. And it's, and it's not, it's like, here we are protesting over force and brutality, and you're responding with like even more tense, intense versions of that. And, and yet, you know, and like you, you saw what our police chief said, where he said that the, we're protesting are as responsible for George Floyd's death as the cops in your city, which not only makes no sense, mm -hmm. but is indicative of kind of like this adversarial relationship that they want to keep and that they're going to grow, honestly. So... I would hope that since this incident was located in Minneapolis, that the, the law enforcement has a kind of a closer tie to the incident. And maybe, and these are, you know, presumably people who live in Minneapolis too, you know, and don't want to see a city that's burning out of control. That, uh, so 96% of our police force in Minneapolis lives outside of Minneapolis. Mm. That's one big problem. There's a huge, in my, in my mind, gap in connection to the actual place that they're supposed to be protecting and serving. Um, so to answer your question and run the risk of getting in a little bit of trouble, law enforcement response has been awful. It's been absolutely awful. Um, the biggest reason why it's been awful, and I would maybe even argue the only reason why it's been as awful, is who Callie mentioned earlier, Bob Kroll, who is the uh, president of the Federation Order Police, right, the, the head of the police union. Uh, he put out a letter yesterday that did not name George Floyd, uh, essentially blamed us for uh, George Floyd dying, 
tried to bring up his you know lengthy criminal and violent record if that even exists right no no remorse and said recently that he's been involved bob crow three police killings and none of them have impacted him emotionally I now that. this is a guy who, i'm a psychopath you know? Right. And this is a guy who the cops keep electing. Right. So when we talk about police reform and making changes within the department, we can't do that if he's overwhelmingly reelected every single uh, cycle. That tells me that he reflects them in so many ways because his leadership um, continues to maintain itself. So, so no. Oh, sorry, Ron. Keep going. No, that's it. it the, the response has been awful. Yeah, I mean, and again, that's like the cultural systemic issue here. And I think about that at the root, like what is the origin of the policing system that we have today? It is literally capturing slaves. So they're still out here hunting black men. What do we expect from a system whose origins are that you can't get away from that, right? Like that is always gonna be embedded somehow into what we have today. And that is, that's disgusting. So, I mean, to be honest, like, I, Yes, I am disgusted, and I think that there is a lot of change that needs to happen there, but I'm also not surprised because this is how systems work. They are set up to function as they are originated. Like, that is the intent. That's what we have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that in this case, um, unfortunately, the incidences have gotten so bad, and the public sentiment, I think, has shifted substantially um, that I was talking to a lobbyist a couple of days ago, and she was like, you know, we say that pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered and meaning that organizations that kind of give and take that are reasonable in their requests that kind of like, you know, undertake reforms when like politically reasonable, um, those things kind of survive. When you get to the point where you have impunity, where you're making unreasonable demands, like no normal person thinks is reasonable, where you're so far away from public sentiment and you overreach, I think that that, then, then, then you're very vulnerable. And I, I want to believe that these associations and the Bob Crowles and all them, they have miscalculated what people are willing to tolerate and that maybe Minnesota can be a place where we can start to see substantial reform because of this situation's kind of gravity and, and, and the alarm that it's raised. Um, and hopefully the reforms that you guys put in place signal to the rest of the country like, hey, the Bob Crowles is done, you know, and we can actually start to, California has some of the worst laws, liberal California, has some of the most draconian and kind of law enforcement protecting policies in the nation. And so I'm really hopeful that kind of what can come out of this, if George Floyd, you know, died for anything, hopefully it is for a world that kind of like starts to roll back some of these, some, all this impunity and lack of accountability. Um, and, you know, I, I, I didn't want to take up too much of your time, but kind of like, what would you say to kind of give us a little bit of hope or kind of like, uh, you know, obviously this community-based um, activism and organization that sprung up hopefully can kind of get continue to have legs and more resources. But in terms of like changing a culture, um, what do you think is feasible? Because Minneapolis is basically a microcosm of so many cities. It's just like Sacramento, you know, in terms of that's where I'm from. And I feel like there's a lot of parallels with what you're describing with our city. Do you have hope? I mean, I guess that's a, a more honest question. Like, do you think that this is something that's going to change in our lifetime? Can it without just straight up abolishing the police, which I don't think is likely to happen, to say the least? I mean, <laughs> if we, it is, I will be honest, like it is hard to find hope sometimes because again, like it feels like we're doing a lot of the right things, but like, I think this is also a call in for all of us as individuals to recognize that like, I keep using this word systems, but like we are the system, we uphold the system. Like this is our work now. 
Like, yes, we have people that are going to do, again, politics and policy and everything else, right? But like, we have to come to the table and be with the discomfort. And maybe that's the next step is like calling in these folks that are benefiting from the divestment and the destruction of these communities and have been for a very long time to sit with that discomfort. So I'm specifically naming white people. Like I appreciate that people are posting black. Well, I don't appreciate the black squares that like really ruins some things, but like, you know, I I get it. You want to be an ally. You're trying to like figure out what to do. Be with the discomfort. Like it is really critical. Don't ask people like, I don't know what we're doing. I don't know what to do. Nobody fucking does, right? Like this is crazy right now, but just sit with that and recognize that black and brown folks have had to walk with that for a very long time and then figure out what you're going to do and act as an anti-racist ally, right? Like what are the things that you're going to change? What are the conversations that you're going to have? And I'd love to also call them private business. We have the most Fortune 500 organizations here per capita. I think the statements that are being made are so cute, but like legitimately, what are you doing to invest in these communities over the long term, right? And I can even speak on behalf of maybe my organization that I'm calling in, right? We made a $10 million investment. We're going to pay for George Floyd's children's education. That's a great start, but we have a lot more work to do and we need to authentically show up and also address the policing situation because Ron, you had said this in one of our conversations the other day, it's inauthentic to like use this moment to also just like build a STEM lab or like whatever, whatever. Like we have to talk about what's actually going on here. And again, that's going to require some really difficult conversations and some real discomfort. But like, I think that's where we have to start. And I think even the fact that people are like, you know, starting to consider what their role is to play instead of just pointing the finger at all of these things that aren't working says something about where we can be and is giving me some semblance of hope um, because I just feel like we can't wait. It really is on us. And I just, I want to like call people into doing that work. You know, I'm with you. I'm a little more optimistic, but I'm pretty much where you're at that this this optimism is, is cautious and it's coupled with the vast amount of work that we have to do. Um, what gives me hope is just the sheer volume and diversity of people who are speaking up, right? Mm-hmm. I have white people who I've been in my life, my whole life, and have never gotten it and will never get it, but are stepping up in ways that I've never seen them step up. I'm seeing corporations and companies naming police brutality, naming racism, naming white supremacy and white nationalism. I mean, that's unheard of, right? That, that, People are not. Yeah, many of these companies are actually based in Minneapolis. I mean, Target, like Best Buy, like all these companies. Yeah. That, and they have you a know, role. They've contributed to their own problems, but yeah, it's great. 100%. And I, I think the, the you know, to, to harp on what Callie was saying as well, I think there's a disconnect, though, right? People are making those statements, but they're not acknowledging and reconciling with their success being largely a divestment or an extraction from the community that they exist in, right? We expect more than just the nice statements. Um, we don't want episodic displays of compassion. We're asking for a long-term, long-term commitment to anti-racism. We're asking for a long-term commitment to investing in the communities that you've benefited from. We're asking for a long-term commitment in real equity, right? Real equity means money, but real equity means spending other capital in places that need the capital the most. What gives me hope is that we have our entire city council sign a letter today uh, talking about divestment from the police, talking about no new, no new uh, dollars to the department without accountability attached to it. Um, we're looking at the police contracts right now and in a way that we've never opened them and made them transparent, trying to come up with a public process for what goes in those contracts. Um, we're starting to see people say, you know what, maybe law enforcement isn't the best 
alternative to or the best means of keeping our public safe. We're elevating healthcare workers and social workers as people who can actually um, keep people safe, right? We are investing in mental health code responders, for example, so that we don't send an armed cop to a, to a situation. We send somebody who can actually manage the situation. Um, I think what will help is having, like I said, the sheer volume and sheer diversity of the voices that are contributing. It ain't just black people now saying black lives matter, thank God. It ain't just activists and organizers saying we need police reform, right? It isn't just people who work in government calling for Bob Crow, the union president, to step down and resign. I mean, everybody is weighing in. And um, that's what gives me hope, right? That the fact that this happened in Minneapolis and all across the country, all across the world, people are calling for change and naming it, right? It, it'll be beautiful when the corporations start putting out statements that say, and oh, by the way, we're advocating for Bob Crow to go too. The fact that the University of Minnesota, which is older as an institution than Minnesota as a state, said, nope, we're not, we are not going to contract with Minneapolis police anymore. Right? Callie said it earlier. The school board said, nope, we're not contracting with Minneapolis police anymore. Other businesses are starting to cancel their private contracts with our off-duty cops because they're making a statement that we don't trust them and they're not going to keep us safe. So that alone, and I know awareness isn't all of it, but that alone feels different than any other moment. Um, as it relates to police brutality and anti-racism that I've experienced. Yeah. Yeah, I, we just, I, go on, Kelly. Sorry, I just want to add too, like, to that end, yes, I, do, I had said this earlier, like, it, it does have to be about policing. And I think, again, like, when we think more broadly, we step back, like, how do we create these conditions as a state for this to happen? It is also that we need to diversify our leadership boards. We need to look at our hiring. We need to look at implicit bias. We need to figure out all of that stuff at an organizational level, too, because 80% of people of color that come to the state leave in the first two years if they're not from here. Why does that happen? Right. We already know why. And there's studies, by the way, like we did one a couple of years ago. So that is also part of the fabric and the texture of what needs to change. That, again, to Ron's point, I think that is starting to happen. And it is the big things like the divestment. And it's also the smaller things that organizations and people have to look within themselves to say, yeah, we're a part of this. Like, we got to figure this shit out. Everyone's sharing in the responsibility. I think they're recognizing that they all have a role. And they all have a responsibility. And you know what we're encouraging people to do is use whatever title, role, access, whatever you have to advance the cause of anti-racism. That's it. And I think that you know, I think that people are starting to see that they are impacted by this. You know, I mean, white people may not be fearful of the police. First of all, you're learning to be fearful of the police if you're participating in these protests. They're pushing white people too. You know, they're shooting rubber bullets at white people too. These bullets don't care. Um, and so I think that that's an important thing. But I also think it is about, you know, creating a vision for a world where like all of us can, will actually all benefit. It's not just black people who benefit by a law enforcement community that's not abusive. Everyone does. A, a community that where everyone can get an education and like not be sick and expect a, you know, a good life if they work hard. Like that is something that makes a whole community more enjoyable. And I think that that is also part of this kind of repositioning. It's like, it's not just because you have a ton of advantages if you're white, like that creates a pretty unstable, shitty system in a shitty city to live in. You know, and I think that everyone just has to see their benefit in things changing. I think that's becoming a little bit clearer. I agree. Like, look, this system that we're in hurts all of us. It disproportionately affects the people that it's intended to harm. But this isn't good for any of us. So I agree. Like, I hope that we can start to see that and see the ways that we're all impacted and say, like, 
we don't have to be this way, right? Like, there's another way. (laughs) I mean, human beings created this problem. And so human beings are going to be the ones to solve it, right? That the beauty, I think, of focusing on anti-racism and anti-blackness is that once we solve for that, again, to your point, everybody benefits from that. Angela Glover Blackwell, who used to be a policy link, talked about the curb cut effect. I think it might even be her theory that says, when you build a curb cut on a sidewalk for somebody who's in a wheelchair, everybody benefits from that curb cut, right? So when we focus on making conditions better for black folks, everyone's gonna benefit from those conditions being better. It ain't just like we focus on anti-racism and now black folks aren't the only ones getting killed by cops. Now white people are gonna start getting killed by cops. No, it means that no one's gonna be killed by cops now, right? right? When we focus and say, hey, there's a lot of priest brutality on the black community, let's invest in community alternatives to safety, everybody benefits from those community alternatives. And if that's how you get on board because you see a benefit from it, I think that's fine as an entry point. I I hope that when people opt into this moment that they're on this path to participation for the rest of their lives, they recognize that this isn't just a moment to take your selfie and, you know, do the trauma porn thing, right? This is your access point, but there's, once you're in, you're in. There's no going back. You can't not be anti-racist anymore, or you can't not be committed to anti-racism anymore. No more passive non-racism, right? Like this requires you to change your life. George Floyd died, right? Changed the world. Now it's up to them to change their behaviors and change their lives in, re- in response. Yeah. Well, we will all be better off. <laughs> we'll all be better really? off. Yeah. And that's that's <laughs> the point. It's like, we will all be better off. And I think, you know, we aren't going back. Whatever comes after this is not the same as it was, whether that can be a much more hopeful kind of like, much more progressive reality that we've been struggling for for generations or hell, <laughs> you know, one is coming um, mm-hmm. or something in between, but it's not what it was. Um, so I just want to thank you guys so much. I know how crazy it is. I know that we're awaiting the announcement of the um, kind of other three officers and whether they'll be charged. And um, I anticipate no matter what the outcome of that is, you know, you, sh- you, sh- you uh, there'll be a lot of activity in Minneapolis. Um, so I stay safe. Um, this has been really informative and, um, I guess take care of yourselves, please. Trey, really appreciate the invitation. Really good to meet you. Uh, let's, let's have some more conversations. This is really good. Absolutely. I'll be checking back in. I have your number and your email. Callie, thank you so much for organizing this. Uh, yeah, really of course. And I think people will get a lot out of this. So I'm glad that we started here. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks, Trey. Thanks, Ron. No Thanks, worries. Callie. Take care. Appreciate it. Bye. Well, that was very, very uh, informative. Um, Callie and Ron, thank you so much, A, for the work that, you've been, that you're doing, that you've been doing, uh, for laying out that context for uh, what's going on in Minneapolis. I do think that we do have an opportunity to use George Floyd's death in a way that is not in vain, that kind of provides an example for how different communities can be, how the world can be. Um, I like that we've seen kind of that Midwestern whiteness politeness, excuse me, that white politeness, um, kind of make a way for change and kind of getting your hands dirty and sitting with discomfort and and actually understanding what your role is to play. I think that that in so many communities like Minneapolis, it's the white people who are now getting involved and who are now kind of opening their eyes to this inequity and kind of understanding that they're, you know, benefiting from a very unequal system, but that actually everyone's losing because we have horrible, horrible systems that are killing us and providing kind of unstable and unequal environments. And I think that there is room for hope. I mean, 
a lot will come down to kind of the reaction from the people in charge, but most of it will come down to like what individual communities are willing to settle for or willing to fight. So again, thank you so much for coming on here. I hope you guys get a lot out of this and uh, stay tuned for another episode of What We Gonna Do. Stay safe.